Bill, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Of course. Thanks for having me, Ben. So uh, I'd like to just start just to hear a little bit more about you. What's your story? Of course. Yeah. Um, so I'm a fellow student here at UChicago. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania uh, and moved to LA when I was around 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm interested in the classics and philosophy. Uh, that's what I'm studying now. And play volleyball i play the organ that's cool <laughs> um, all sorts of goofy stuff like that yeah <laughs> yeah did what why the organ did you start here or did you yeah. do it before i I've, I've played piano for a long time and um i got a little bored of that yeah and i i was connected with someone uh at my church who plays the organ mm. um and i was introduced to them and started taking lessons and liked it a lot more than the piano and uh, yeah. I've stuck with it since then. <laughs> How many keyboards are there? Like, are there... Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on the organ. And uh-huh. one thing you'll notice with organs is they're not uniform whatsoever. So every every one you have will be a little different. Yeah. So there are some with uh, with two and some with, you know, four. It, it, it varies a lot. Yeah. So do you have to like learn how to play different like ways for each type of organ? I mean, I, they'll vary a little bit insofar as like how you're actually playing them, but a lot of it's just for, you know, sort of the extra stuff. Like the only reason you'd have four manuals is if you're doing like a ton of different sounds at once, which you wouldn't need for most things. Yeah. It's more yeah. ornaments than anything. The organ at my church is absolutely massive. And it, mm. it, I was on the vestry for a few months. Yeah, it required so much maintenance. I mean, it does require. It was a really lot. large draw on money. I yeah, have they, to say. Like, they always sink so much money into. Them. <laughs> and you see, like where the keyboard is, and then you look in the other side of the room, and like the whole massive thick yeah. wall—that's yeah. where the actual like oh, yeah. stuff is going on. It, it's, it was like pretty amazing. Number one, that one person plays that, mm-hmm. and it's just like such mm-hmm. a significantly large instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but yes, they sink a lot of uh, their yearly budget into the yeah. <laughs> Probably more than they should be. It does sound cool, though. It does sound very cool. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of expect it when I go to a church. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So Pennsylvania to California. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you go to private school in Pennsylvania? I did. I did. I went to a, a very small uh, Christian school mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of rural Pennsylvania, um, which taught us Latin and history okay. and not a whole lot of science and math, which probably explains the discrepancy in my interest now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was very different to the school I went to in uh, later in LA. But uh, What was that like? Um, well, I went to a school called Harvard Westlake, which uh, is sort of notorious for, you know, housing celebrities' children and that uh, sort of thing. Interesting. Um, very competitive, uh, obviously a lot larger, mm-hmm. um, exposed to a lot more things. Yeah. Um, so in your like elementary school situation, you were learning Latin. Like, yes. <laughs> what, what were you reading then? <laughs> well, there wasn't a whole lot of reading. It, uh, <laughs> it was pretty rudimentary. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember it was like, you just learn like I would say if I if I had taken up Latin now, I could probably learn everything we did in elementary school in about a couple weeks. Yeah, it was not exactly. Yeah, uh, it was just kind of getting you interested and starting you on the track of yeah, you know, 
learning some basic vocab and mm -hmm. how the super basic grammar works. Yeah. I find it to be a, a kind of an interesting paradox where we are constantly told that the younger you are, the better you are at learning languages. And I, I think I read yeah. recently that learning a second language, like eight-year-olds, is like an ideal age. And yet, yeah. for, at least for like my education for languages in the like the early elementary school, it was kind of terrible. Like we, <laughs> yeah. we learned the same thing every year. Yeah, it was the same Spanish. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of felt like we weren't taking advantage of that time. And then yeah. when you get to middle school, suddenly now you're actually like learning languages, and it's like becoming a part of your daily schedule. That's a great point. Yeah, learning languages in the classroom is just a very odd experience, especially at a young age. I think it's it takes a lot of mental capacity to learn something in the in the in the classroom versus maybe like learning it more naturally and kind of just being uh immersed in it yeah i think learning languages in classroom is difficult no matter difficult. how old you yeah. are i think like for some things it makes more sense like for languages that are no longer spoken learning in the right. classroom does the make way. more sense yeah <laughs> yeah unless you can like go access the primary sources somewhere in the world and like chase them around i guess yeah 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 <laughs> but yeah like learning I don't know. Learning French was always very unsatisfying for me in high school. Yeah. Just yeah. because, like, the majority of the class was spent speaking English. And yeah. then yeah. the way you learned French was so, okay, here's a new rule. Learn the rule. Take a test where you have to, like, regurgitate that rule yep. over and over again. Very little speaking. Mm -hmm. Just, like, in learning German college has been the same, too. I'm sure. It's been, I think, better because our vocab lists are like the thousand most common used words. Like okay. that's what it's based off of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's such a it's so foreign to how like children learn languages, and I'm curious how we got to this model of like learning languages this way. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, if you go far enough back, I think uh, a lot of people had similar experiences to to the one I did, where you know you grow up learning. Latin and Greek, mm -hmm. and for a long time that was sort of the paradigm that people followed. Yeah, <laughs> which obviously there is no immersive opportunity. Yeah, uh, you know, really. So, um, but it, it is interesting. I don't know why um, other languages follow the same model. Perhaps just it's a practical thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's hard to just dive straight in in a classroom when you're meeting, you know, a couple times a week. Yeah, that, that's yeah. definitely part of it. Like, if you actually go to the country, you're speaking it or hearing it at least all the time. Yeah. And so you pick it up very quickly and you have to pick it up like it's necessity. Whereas in the classroom, you know, you're, if you only speak it a little bit each week, right. it's going to be hard to actually like measure your progress. Exactly. I think that may be part of it too. Just like it's such a large emphasis on measuring like progress versus just letting it happen naturally. Cause it's, it's hard to measure someone's knowledge on a test if their knowledge of the language is really like disparate and spread over it, like mm -hmm. they are not super strong at one rule, but they're strong, like immediate, like medium strong at a bunch of rules. Yep. Cause then the only way to test that would be testing them on the whole language, which is just <laughs> not efficient. No. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I feel like the trying to be too efficient in it is really potentially holding us back. Yeah. yeah. So once you get to Harvard West, like you stayed on the uh, old language track. I did. I did. Um, yeah, I had the, I was very fortunate to, I had really fantastic teachers mm -hmm. uh, who taught me Latin. Um, yeah. And I, I, I suppose part of that was just they made it interesting. You know, they kind of moved beyond the, um, 
you know, simple rules and grammar mm -hmm. to uh, reading actual texts. And um, that, you know, at a time in sort of eighth, ninth, tenth grade, when a lot of the other classes you're taking are somewhat dull and hard to buy into. Yeah. Like reading stuff like ancient history and uh, poetry, that kind of uh, sucked me in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. If I were to ask you, like, in middle school, what you would want to do with your life, do you think it would be, your answer with them would be, like, the classics, or? I think if you asked me in eighth or ninth grade, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've stuck with it fairly, fairly rigidly. Mm -hmm. um, I've gotten more into philosophy recently, but I, I think the classics were always sort of there, and I've always been interested. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm someone who's always struggled to get into the classics, yeah. Like, it's always been a little bit annoying to me, and especially translating was always annoying to me, because sure. I could always just, someone's done it before, I could read uh -huh. it in English. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, like, what's the draw for you? Um, there's a lot, but one that I, I've, I've kind of come to realize recently is when you're translating a text, it's simultaneously incredibly frustrating the speed you're going at, and I think also quite rewarding. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a professor here that called it going at the speed of Latin, which <laughs> I think is a, a good way of putting it. Yeah, um, You're forced to go so slowly um, that you take in just about every detail, mm -hmm. which is um, something I've never experienced reading uh, in English text or, or any sort of translated text. I mean, so many things just go right over your head. Um, and I... I I'm not, you know, like a purist. I don't think you should have to read everything in the yeah. original language. Like, I, I read most things in translation. But yeah. I don't know. If you, if you find a particular passage you're interested in or a particular text, I think there's definitely some value in, in going back and trying to look at the original language. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. I think I was most excited to, like, get into classics when I was really into Seneca. Yeah. And then I, I bought, like, his letters to Lucius. Yeah. Yeah. And actually Latin, and I was planning to translate it. And that never actually happened. <laughs> but there was a moment where I was actually really excited to like look at the original Latin and try to decode it because yeah. at least the translation I was reading was pretty old and a little bit out of touch probably. So I thought it'd be really cool to go back. I mean I actually convinced my Latin teacher to like we had a few free days yeah. um the year before we took the A P class, so like we weren't as rushed. And anytime we had free time, I was like, can we please read Seneca? Because it was like, what is something actually applicable to my life? Yep. Something I love to read. And so actually going into it and working through it myself was really exciting. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm working on a translation of Seneca right now. And I'm in like a translation class. And someone asked me, what, what's the point of translating Seneca? It's already been translated. Yeah. You know, hundreds of times. And... I think I, I had a reaction very similar to yours where you know, most of the translations you read are, uh, use very archaic, sort of very high language. Um, it feels a little stale. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not Seneca. Seneca is like full of energy. Yeah. Uh, very powerful. Yeah. Um, so I guess you know, that's kind of something I'm trying to get across. And, yeah. you know, it's like, Seneca's great. You, you know about Seneca. <laughs> yeah. Seneca's perfect. I yeah. think uh, there also is value to slowing down with the text. Yeah. Like, yeah. There, from what I've seen online, there's a significant emphasis on, like, how many books are you reading every year? Oh, yeah. And Goodreads will be like, okay, set your reading goal for the year. <laughs> and 
it's great that that's motivating people to read. But if I was to actually look at like all the books I read on Goodreads, I I remember so little from all of yeah, them. Yeah. And it's because there's such an emphasis on getting more books on your bookshelf mm-hmm. versus actually like extracting the ideas from those books. And so I think when you can slow down with a text, really interact with it in multiple different perspectives and ways, like you're getting a lot out of it that you just don't get because you're going to remember it because you're spending so much time like working through it. You have to work at it to get the meaning. Yeah. And so it sticks with you. And I think that in the modern age where we can get so many books, like I have a Kindle and Mm -hmm. it is so easy to just continuously buy new books. Like I've had to prevent myself from doing it because I can do it in one click. Like that's very dangerous. I have to say. And like for millennia, people were reading like, a couple books if they had access or like purely the Bible or a religious (laughs) text because that's all they could get to because like there's no printing press. And before that, like maybe they're just hearing it from other people. And so I don't know if the human mind is really built for the volume of information that like isn't people are encouraging you to try to shove into it because it's just going to fall out. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what, what what value have you gotten from really slowing down with the text? Are there texts that you remember that you, like, really had to work at translating? And, like, what are some lessons you learned from that? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I'm certainly guilty of uh, uh, perhaps buying more books than I read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my bookshelf is full, and there's certainly some books I hate to read on it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I've... It's funny you say that. I... Very recently, I looked back on sort of my experience in high school, where you're very much put into an environment where you have to read a certain amount of pages, you have yeah. to read a certain amount of books, yeah. um, and I don't, no one really ever stops you and tells you to, you never really uh, presented with the why, why you're reading them. Mm-hmm. There's not really any, you're not presented with a reason or a, a set of things you're supposed to, to get out of the book. Yeah. I mean, obviously that should be you know, on an individual basis, but I find most kids, they're not getting anything out of the books. Mm-hmm. They're just reading it to write an essay and then yeah. they're going to forget everything. Yeah. Or not reading it and still writing or, the essay. Yeah. <laughs> reading spark notes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I looked back on my junior year, which we read, you know, we read uh, The Great Gatsby, we read Faulkner, we read, you know, Whitman, all these great authors. Yeah. I didn't remember anything. Yeah. <laughs> and And so recently, especially like this past summer, I've started really making sure when I'm reading something that I'm documenting things that I'm taking away from it mm-hmm. that I can go and, and, and revisit at a later time. Yeah. Um, which is hard. It forces you to really slow down. Yeah. Uh, and make sure you're really digesting what you're actually reading. Mm-hmm. And it can make it a lot less pleasurable. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Um, but I think in the long run, if it's a text you want to get something out, I think it's it's a pretty good strategy. And I, I think maybe finding a balance between reading things that you're really going to enjoy and that are going to continue to spark your interest um, for reading and for learning with you know things that might be more um, applicable and practical and things that you want to to really learn um, mm-hmm. might be key. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you like record your notes from what you read? Yeah. Um, I, 
don't know if it's the best system, but I, I sort of record quotes as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of a book, I, I annotate and write questions up on the margin yeah. or whatever. And then at the end, I try to write a couple pages mm-hmm. just of the main takeaways from it, things yeah. I appreciated, things yeah. I, I hope they implement perhaps. If yeah. It's, you know, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've, my system for like recording what I read and like interacting with that has really evolved over time. Yeah. Started on note cards and I, I had like, I think this was a couple summers ago and I had like 50 note cards by the end of that where I was just like putting more and more. Yeah. And then I was upset because like if I wanted to find a specific note card, I would have to go through all of yeah. them to get to <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, so then I digitized it and like I have a, a program called Room Research mm-hmm. and there's just all the different notes you can have. And one of the cool things that Rome Research has is that it integrates, it integrates with, like, your Kindle. So all your highlights from your Kindle will go right onto Rome, which has made it really easy. But as I've done that, I realize more and more that while those notes are being taken, the fact that I'm not interacting with those texts again, like, I never bring those, like, use those notes ever again. Like, they're in there, but... There was something really about slowing down, picking which quotes I wanted to actually write yeah. down. Because when you have to choose, like, you know, when you're writing it down, it takes a while to actually write it down. It's an annoying process. And so you have to be very selective and also, like, think about, okay, is this something I actually am going to use? Like, is it giving me value? And I miss that. And I think I want to bring that back just because when you try to be more and more efficient, like, with the knowledge that you're bringing in... Mm. It goes back to just slowing down and taking the time to actually digest it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? I had a question when you were talking about notes. Oh, yeah. So you read a lot. I'm curious, like, how your learning looks different from when you're in school, like your education in school versus you educating yourself outside of school. Mm-hmm. How do those compare? Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, they wouldn't look different. Um, but again... Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I, I try to employ the same strategies with, with my school reading, but it oftentimes just ha- doesn't happen in the same sort of organic way. And, yeah. I mean, obviously when you, when you have deadlines you need to hit, um, it's, it's very, when, when you're more goal oriented, um, as far as your reading, I find, uh, the sort of digestion and actual progress can kind of go by the wayside a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, when your goal is to finish, you know, X number of pages mm-hmm. to get something out of it. Yeah. Which for the most part is what it is for uh, yeah. reading in an academic context. And yeah, I find I, I, I get a lot more out of it when I, uh, I'm reading over the summer or, or reading independently. Um, and when I am not really focused on, um, you know, hitting a certain deadline or reading a certain number of pages, but you can actually just say, I'm going to read for, you know, as long as I want, maybe an hour, maybe two hours, mm-hmm. and just focus on finishing however many pages I want and just getting however much out of it I can. Really. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, I experienced the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like during early COVID, like there was, we had three weeks without school. And then even when there was school, it wasn't the full school situation. Yeah. It was watered down. 
I learned so much during that period. Like, I learned the most I ever learned ever. (laughs) And it was because, like, in my free time, I would read about neuroscience. I would read the classics. I would read Victorian fiction, which I never did in school. And I was Mm. like, this is really cool. And I got really into it. And I just learned so much because it was for me. Versus, like, when you're in school, you're learning both for someone else and it's in a standardized fashion. Like, there is value, I think, to all reading the same thing and then coming in to discuss it. Yeah. But, like, having to keep up with that, and also, especially for high-achieving students whose identity is often barely tightly wound to their academic performance, it's not fun anymore. And you're more focused on just, like, learning the tricks to play the game versus actually getting something out of it. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate, but that's the system that we're in. <laughs> Hard not to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. curious what mistakes you've made along the way as you've learned about learning yeah mistakes um i think early in my my high school experience we're talking like 10th grade um i very much got sucked into the sort of competitive atmosphere where i wasn't really focused on learning for learning's sake but sort of learning as a a means to an end yeah yeah. And that was very much the culture of my school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was harder to find passionate people who actually, you know, really cared what they were studying about. Yeah. Um, I mean, people were incredibly smart and did really well, but um, they, it wasn't organic, I would say. Yeah. Um, and so I think I, for a couple of years, definitely got sucked into that and was taking classes that I knew I could do well in. Um taking classes that, you know, had that honors or AP title on it just for the sake of doing so, even though I had absolutely no interest in, in the topic. Yeah. Um, and I think in the long run, I probably learned way less than I would have if I had just taken things I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that the results were that much better, honestly. I think yeah. you're probably going to do better doing what you really like to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there were, I forget what the professor's name was, but some professor at Yale, I think in the 50s or 60s, noticed like similarities between what you just said and Yale students where their goal was to get like a job. And so they would take easy classes where they could get good grades. They would basically only do what they needed to do to get like an internship and set them up for success. And he called them like professional hoop jumpers. Yeah. And basically what it comes down to is that these students weren't like looking at their education as there being something larger at stake. Like it was simply for them to get a job that they wanted. And it feels very comfortable to be in that position because like everyone is telling you you're doing the right thing. Like you're getting good grades. You're, and you're told like, that's the way it goes. Like no one is asking you how much did you actually learn. It's looking at your grades because it's all about like actually measuring and often imperfect measurements of like what you're actually learning. And I think that's becoming more of a problem as we try to educate more people in the the exact same way. And like, I'm curious, how has your freedom and how has your mindset changed from high school coming into college? Yeah. Um, well, first off, I have a lot more freedom uh, with regards to the classes I can take in college, Yeah, uh, which has been very helpful. Um, and just 
a lot more, uh, you know, time to read what I want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so like last quarter, for example, I was in, I was in three classes. Uh, one was, we were reading epic poetry. One we were reading, uh, uh drama from Seneca to like the early modern period. Or whatever. Mm. And the other one we were reading, uh, ancient philosophy. Yeah. I mean, just having that opportunity to, you know, I mean, sure, it's, it's in a standardized format, which is I'm probably not getting out, as much out of it as I would have if I was just kind of doing it on my own. Or I'm getting different things out of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm just uh, very lucky to have that opportunity. Yeah. The, the freedom. I, I don't think a lot of schools have that, and certainly my high school didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think just realizing sort of later on in my high school experience that, you know, it, it'll be okay if I, if I just do things that I really enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and, and I give myself the freedom to do that. Um, not only have I started to do better, but I've just enjoyed the process more and gotten a lot out of it and sort of my interests have, um, rather than stagnating, have sort of continued to expand. Yeah. More things interesting and um you know i'm more excited to learn i would say yeah definitely uh in my senior year of high school i probably like by that point my mindset towards learning was pretty healthy i think yeah and after i got into here i applied early decision so like i was done by december yep. and then it was like oh you know there's still school left and a bunch of people just get senioritis at that point and they check out and they're like doesn't even matter no, no, for me it was like I had anti-senioritis. Me I was too. more excited <laughs> yeah. than I've ever been yeah. because it didn't matter how I performed. Like it, it was just simply about you know I'm gonna come here, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna have a lot of fun. And I like I one of the classes that we had in my high school since we didn't have like AP humanities classes. Mm-hmm. So for your final year, you took humanities, which was when they combined just English and history. So you're meeting twice as much as you would for a normal class. And it was, it was co-taught by some pretty awesome people. And they just gave us so much freedom on our essays. Like, we could do anything we want to about, like, yeah. ancient Greece. So I wrote about Epicurus, and it was, it was just so much fun. And then we got to write about a piece of art, and I wrote about, like, Perseus with the head of Medusa. And here, I haven't enjoyed humanities as much because, yeah. like, it's something I have to do and get over with. But during those few months, like, writing those essays was just so much fun. And, like, calculus suddenly was cool. Like, before <laughs> it was something I had to go to. But then mm-hmm. it, now, like, I actually really enjoyed learning more about it. And I learned so much, and I enjoyed learning, and my grades went up. And it, it was, like, a weird realization for me. It was, like, it doesn't have to be that hard. Because before I was putting so much pressure on myself to, like, constantly perform meet people's expectations but when I just started focusing on the actual learning the grade just came as a byproduct and it was just like much better both for my learning and for my enjoyment and I think like that's how you cultivate a lifelong learning yourself like focus on the learning not on the on the outcomes I think the quality of your work will probably go up too right Mm -hmm. I mean the the opportunities I've had to do sort of independent work in an academic context I mean I think the products have been far beyond anything I've done yeah. where you're sort of given parameters, mm-hmm. rigid parameters like that. Um, you know, you can only 
you can get pretty close to meeting, you know, a teacher's expectations, but when you're sort of setting your own parameters, I think you have so much more creative license and I mean, simply the fact that you're going to be more excited about what you're doing is yeah. just lends itself to, I think, far better results. Yeah. The the more autonomy I have, I've noticed this this year, like the more motivated I am to do it. Mm-hmm. Because when you have autonomy, you have more ownership. And suddenly, like it's not just doing it to for someone else. Like you are putting like your heart and soul into it because yeah. it's yours. And that's just like, I've noticed that about myself. And it's like, if I'm not feeling motivated, it's probably just because I, I, I don't feel like I own it. Yeah. Like, it. It's not something I'm doing for me. Like it's something that I'm told to do. One thing I read on Reddit the other day, on New Chicago Reddit, was like, people were asking about like taking three classes. And someone was like, well, I take four classes to get the value. Like, I want to maximize my value. And I just couldn't help but think, like, I don't think you quite get it. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've only been here for a quarter and a half. Yeah. But from what I've learned here, I learn much more from the people around me than from my classes. I learn a lot from my classes. Mm-hmm. But, like, the conversations I have with people, like, whether that's about what I'm learning in my classes or just about their lives and what they're interested in, I'm learning a lot more from that. Also, like, extracurriculars these like I'm in the entrepreneurship extracurricular where people are really interested in entrepreneurship. I'm yeah. learning so much about it because these students are like really interested in it and they want to share it with you. And for some reason, there's this need to like constantly fill your schedule with more and more. Yes. Yeah. I just like, don't think that's actually going to help you learn. Like I get it that you want to do it all. And there's a lot of cool stuff out there to learn, but the more you load onto yourself, like there's so much value in the serendipity and free time. And yeah. I'm not sure. I'm curious like how you spend your free time that like is really rewarding for you. Well, um, I something I probably need to be better about to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm fairly busy during the week, but I think I'm fortunate in that a lot of the things I'm doing, I really enjoy. Yeah. So whether that's, you know, playing volleyball mm-hmm. or playing the organ or, uh, you know, hanging out with friends, I mean, I might be I might be busy, but it's things I enjoy doing. I think it's there are things that I get a lot out of. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a lot to be said about really just being intentional and, and giving yourself free time and giving yourself license to do things um, that you really want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And about the intentionality piece, one thing I've noticed for students that like really overload themselves and spend a lot of time on stuff is that they're working all the time and they don't have the time to stop and think about like whether what they're working on is actually what they want to be working on. So I'm curious for you, how do you take the time to actually be intentional? Oh, it's so hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, um, you find yourself slipping back into, we'll call it non-intentionality. Yeah. Very easily. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, especially when you're dealing with things like routines, it's very easy to just kind of check out and, go through the motions um and i'm i'm certainly guilty of that at times but i think it's a matter of really just getting good at um you know when, when you feel yourself slip whether that's over the course of weeks or days or even you know in the course of doing a reading mm-hmm. and just reminding yourself like why am i i'm not getting anything out of this why am i doing this and really just recalibrating your focus to 
to get something out of it and yeah. to and to enjoy it and even if it's something tedious like try to try to enjoy the process yeah yeah definitely after college you think you'll still be translating texts outside of an academic sphere because of course there's grad school and such but yeah i mean that's something i'm trying to contend with now i mean i've told i get the question a lot like are, are you are you going to do the classics for a career are you going to continue to do it and it's not something I, I completely know now but i know I will, I will i will continue to do it in in some capacity and obviously i'll continue just to read and, and to explore my academic interests in general yeah in that capacity but I, I'm not doing it just, just for school. I'm doing it because I think there's a lot to be gleaned from it. So yeah. even, even after school, I will, I'll certainly be you know, doing translations and, and reading as much as I can. Um, and I, I sort of see it as a lifelong hobby for me. Yeah. Um, and one that I'm glad I've, I've gotten into. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And last question. What's one thing that you, that isn't currently being measured in the education system that you think should start being measured? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question because um, a lot of the most important things are unmeasurable. Yeah. <laughs> um, if if only there were a way to measure curiosity and passion, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> those are those are the um, the things that make a good student. Mm-hmm. And the things that really uh, uh, contribute to learning. Yeah. So uh, I suppose if there's one thing that could sort of factor into whatever it is, you know, high school, college admissions, your actual performance in college, I suppose it would be what you're doing outside of the classroom. Because mm. I think that's really a a good indicator of if you're actually learning something in the classroom. Um, yeah. If that's you know gotten you interested in sort of taking the next step and certainly just of your general curiosity and interest in a given topic yeah that's a really great answer well thank you so much bill it's been a pleasure to have you on the infinite learner (laughs) of course yeah thank you for having me and i wish you the best